This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, Rebecca, we're actually going to start with you today. We have two interviews, and you'll be first up with your conversation with Emerald Fennell, the writer and director of Saltburn. She's one of the most consistently interesting people to talk to about her work, I think. And uh, from what I understand from this conversation, she really didn't disappoint this time. There's a lot to get into with Saltburn. What did you guys talk about? I really love how her mind works. You know, I know her films are polarizing, but I think she is doing things that are really interesting. She loves making audiences feel uncomfortable. And I really respect that and um, admire that and think she pulls it off a lot of the time. Um, I really wanted to get into her writing process this time because the last time I spoke to her, we couldn't because the writers were still on strike. And, you know, she really keeps her projects a a secret from literally everyone, even her producers, until, you know, she feels like the script is a place to share them. And and I thought that was a really um, interesting way to go about it. Uh, do we need to give a spoiler warning to anybody? I think we're going to talk more about Saltburn uh, on the episode later this week. But if people haven't seen it, I assume that there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of twists in store, but I'm guessing she didn't spoil too much. Yeah, she, she I feel like she's really figured out how to be careful. <laughs> about uh, spoiling her own movies. You know, we talked a couple weeks ago before it was out. Um, So I think you're pretty safe. I mean, I would recommend seeing it before you listen to the full thing. But uh, she doesn't, no, she doesn't spoil any surprises. It's really about her process in in finding the actors and and writing and, and how she really pulls this kind of stuff off. All right. Well, let's hear all about it in your conversation with Saltburn's Emerald Fennell. I'm so excited to welcome the writer-director of Saltburn to the podcast today, Emerald Fennell. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking about this film for a while since I did a, a first look before Telluride. Um, but now, by the time this comes out, we'll be very close or at release. So I'm curious, you know, how we're a few weeks away while we're talking. So I'm, I'm curious how you feel when you know your movie's finally coming out to a wide audience and to the world. I think... At first, I think probably the first time we spoke before anyone had seen it, it, you know, there's a lot of trepidation because you, you know, it's sort of like presenting your baby and saying, do you think my baby is beautiful? (laughs) And people saying, no, actually, it isn't. Or, you know, taking your clothes off and asking people to give you like honest feedback. (laughs) So there's always that thing. But actually, now that it's been playing to people 
you know, festivals and, and all of that, the response has just been so thrilling. And it's just so fun because this time the last film was came out during COVID. But this one I'm getting to kind of go around the country and like meet everyone afterwards. And it's just so wonderful to have the kind of conversations in person with people because, you know, like Promising a Woman, this uh, film in many ways is sort of, you know, quite complicated and you get into it. You really get into those conversations quite deep, quite fast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's really, yeah, I'm excited actually. With this film in particular, I was wondering what that reaction experience is like for you, because I imagine depending on the person and their walk of life and their own experiences, the reactions could be so different to this story. Have you had any that have been extremely surprising? Like, I didn't think of that at all. But, you know. Um, yeah, totally. I think, honestly, what I'm learning is that I, I suppose that that because the movie has a lot of, you know, quite transgressive, you know, sex stuff. And I, I don't know, there's there's a lot about it that's very, very dark. You know, it's a very, very dark comedy, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people certainly at the beginning were concerned that it would be, you know, that it wouldn't kind of, that it, that it might be a bit too transgressive or whatever. But actually, I've really found that people in general, like, really love it and, and, and actually from all walks of life there was a woman there was a woman um with her husband and she must have been in her 70s um at one of the festivals and she came up to me afterwards and she was kind of shaking and she just said like I just needed to come and find you because I needed to tell you like nothing's ever I just nothing's ever touched there's just something just I feel like something's just kind of come out that I've never felt before and that's just so exciting and of course you know you don't expect that from a woman who's just bought a ticket in her, you know, it's just like, it's just, that's exactly what I wanted this movie to do was to kind of hit that spot, which is kind of uncomfortable, but pleasurable. But, you know, of course, there are a lot of, you know, every conversation is different. Every room is different. That's what's been so exciting. It's like, you know, in some rooms, it's like total pin drop silence. In other rooms, it's super rowdy. And then, yeah, a lot of anecdotal evidence of quite a lot of um, sexy behaviour that happens after <laughs> after people watch the movie. So, yeah, I don't know. I I just, I, I kind of, you make something that you love and you hope other people understand and love it too. And so it's like, it's fun meeting everyone. Yeah. So speaking of Promising Young Woman, you know, after that was such a success as your directorial debut and you know you won an Oscar there there was a lot of good things that I assume came after that and I, I also assume there was probably some outreach of like do you want to direct something that isn't something you wrote there I'm sure there were opportunities that were coming your way how did you decide that you know Saltburn would be next for you I think I mean it, it was a really yeah it was kind of an extraordinary time and I think also again because because of the pandemic I was at home mm-hmm which meant, which kind of in a funny way meant, I was, and I was very pregnant and had a very young child already. So I was sort of, in many ways, not really exposed to, you know, what was what was happening in a funny way. And I think what I realised early on is that I was, yeah, getting lots of incredible offers. I mean, just unbelievable things that, you know, and with people I've wanted to work with my whole life and just so tempting, so gorgeous, so many things that could have been just so fun and amazing. But what I what I realized about myself, I think now, 
is that I can only do one thing at a time. Mm. And I can only do it in sort of secret, you know, and, and then I give, you know, I don't even show my husband or I don't show anyone until something's completely finished. So nobody knows what it even is. Um, and it's sort of the only way that it can, I think it's the only way that I can like comfortably, happily work. And so I said quite early on to the, my lovely like managers and agents, like, don't tell me don't show me because it's too tempting. And these offers, it's not at all that I'm sort of, you know, turning my back in a sort of um, haughty way. It's more that I I know that there are things I just couldn't bear to turn down. So I, so it's sort of, I realised, especially when you've got young kids, you can only do so much and you, and you need to choose the thing that you want to do next. And, and I've been thinking about Saltburn for years and years. It was always the next thing I wanted to make. But in many ways, this version of it that we ended up making is sort of much more, I, you know, I started thinking about it maybe eight years ago, but I feel like this version of it is certainly, certainly feels post-COVID. It's much stickier. It's much more preoccupied with closeness and intimacy and, and sex maybe than, than, it, than perhaps it would have been. But I think we've all felt so apart from each other. Yeah, it's it's interesting how something that you've been thinking about for a long time changes hmm. under the circumstances. And we haven't been able to talk about the writing process until now, but since the yeah. you know the strike is, for writers has finally ended. So how did how did this process writing Saltburn differ from Promising Young Woman for you? Do you always write in a similar fashion? It didn't really differ. You know, the the difference was that Promising Young Woman, wonderful lucky chap, had you know, had um, optioned it from the idea. So they knew what it was going to be about, more or less, um, before I handed it in. But even so, I don't think I did an outline or any of that thing. those things. I, I just asked them if they would let me kind of write the script. And with this one, you know, as I say, nobody knew anything about it until I gave in the kind of completed script. And um, for me, the kind of solitude of it it's very much an it's very much an imaginary world and i've i've learned over time the more people are in allowed in there the less real it becomes to me and the less detailed and and also in a sort of some sort of perverse way i sort of lose interest it has to feel private for it to be really honest mm. um and especially if you're talking about the sorts of things i like to talk about which is sort of you know, self-delusion and and lying and and the sort of things we fantasize about kind of secretly. Um, it's not really something you can sit in a conference room and develop and then write an outline for, you know? Yeah. So so my writing process just over the course of years, I just I just sit and think and daydream and I visit worlds and these worlds just become more and more fixed and then the conversations that happen there become more and more fixed and you know, people come and people go and there are characters who, who are there for a while but don't work out or become someone else. And and then I write it down when I know it's finished. When I finish thinking about it, when I can't think about it anymore, when I've when I know when the things that are happening in the rooms are the same every time. Mm. That there's kind of nowhere else to explore. Like I've kind of finished the game, I guess, as it as it were. And then I and then I write it down and I try as much as possible not to redraft or, or to only redraft you know at certain points so you know 
after I've met all the actors and we've had a rehearsal and they've said things that really sparked and are exciting or, you know, we're on set and something has to be done for practical purposes. But for me, the more the dialogue is reworked in particular, the more it loses its sort of vividness and kind of honesty. So your your process, because I think the one of the slogans that we live by is writing is rewriting, but that's not really your process, it sounds like. Well, I suppose, but it is my process. It's just not on paper. Mm, So actually, if you you wrote down every draft that I've been thinking of, it's thousands and thousands Mm. and thousands. It's just not on paper because I can't, for some reason, I, I mean, I can do it. Of course, I've had to do that process, like for lots of other things for my whole career really especially with the books and um and you know working with other people and other stuff of course that's part of it but for me when it comes to these things you know the writing has to be done in my head so it is it is redrafted it's a kind of cheat to say it's not Mm -hmm. you know it makes me sound (laughs) no no I can tell a lot of the work is in your head but I it's sort of like transcribing. It's a bit like automatic writing then when I write it down because I know it. I know all the dialogue already. You know, I've been saying it for years and I've been trying out different things. And I just think like once it's black on white, it's it has happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there are, there are small things that can be improved upon, but honestly, I'm more likely to write a whole new scene later having spoken to the actors than I am to kind of, you know, zone into an old one. Yeah. Who reads your script first when it is finally on paper? Are there certain people beyond, you know, your reps that you send it to? My husband, who is really, really wonderful and the perfect kind of combination of honest and encouraging. (laughs) And my mother, who is also a writer, who's a brilliant writer. And who, yeah, who is, yeah, she's, I think, completely unshockable, you know, and so she's a really fun person. I know that if I've if I shock my mother, I've gone too far because she really has no. Uh, you know, <laughs> if I have a dark sense of humor, I think my mother really is kind of even even more in, in, intense in that regard. So yeah, so I, I I kind of I think those two I always want to show it to, but 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 you know, again, it's usually just to have a conversation and then to make me sort of think and then and then I'll, I'll tend to show it to them and then I, I I usually won't change anything but I'll show it to a wider group mm-hmm. and what I'll try to do is keep everyone's thoughts in mind so that and that, then when we, I meet the actors and all that kind of stuff everyone you know then I can just minimize the redrafting I have you know you know you just have common you know sometimes people lots of people will say the same thing yeah. lots of people will like something or not understand something so then you can but you can keep that. I don't like to do it every time somebody has notes because it just dies on its mm-hmm. ass for me. Mm-hmm. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I 
I've talked a lot about the performances in this. I think they're incredible. Obviously, particularly Barry and Jacob, I think, really deliver. Um, and Rosamund Pike, who we can talk about too. But uh, <laughs> when you meet with, you know, an actor like Barry or Jacob and you're trying to cast these roles, what do you do with them? Do you do formal auditions? Is it just more of a conversation? What are you looking for to know they're the right person? It's it's really interesting. I think it's a combination of things, but I, I, I like to meet people for usually, especially for the kind of the bigger roles, I will always want to just meet people first and have a coffee because I just want to know. Really, I don't know what it is exactly, but it is a chemistry thing. And it's not just a chemistry thing between them, but it's between us because I just want to know what kind of a person I'm dealing with, I suppose. Partly it's because the way that I like to work is that, you know, we have, everyone has the same kind of shit trailer. Um, all of the actors have a green room on set, you know, whether they've got a line or or um, they're the lead. And, you know, so nobody goes back to base to change. Nobody's ever in their trailer. Everyone, cast and crew, eat together every day, everyone. And so it's important to me early on to kind of say, like, this is going to be a communal act of kind of trust and like creative industry and we're not gonna you know and there are lots of people who don't really who can't for whatever reason who don't like that who need other things to make it work for them so there's the partly that practical side of things but it's an honesty thing mm. we have to start looking at very complicated things very early on and so I need to kind of know that people, I guess, are open to that, whether they're honest, I suppose, or, you know, or as honest as any of us can be, or even even if they're honest about lying. You know, so a lot of my questions will be things like, do you like being famous? <laughs> right. For example, it's an interesting, and it's, and it's not, it doesn't matter how people answer. It's just looking at what's the, okay, where are these little how we are we going to be able to get into this honestly mm. and you know when you're making films like this you really need to know that and so then you know so I meet people and and then if I haven't seen enough of their work or I need to check on an accent or whatever so I met Jacob and I thought he was just immediately honest funny wry a very keen observer of people which is why I think his performance is so special very very deft observational comic actually but he you know I met him and I hadn't seen Euphoria I hadn't seen anything he'd been in yet and I and I actually didn't realize that he was obviously such a massive star when I met him but he was so um candid and interesting and and then when he came into audition he just he just blew everyone out of the water because he what he did and noticed and what nobody else did and noticed, even though they did beautiful, beautiful work, was um, that actually his character is sort of weak, sort of not special, sort of mm -hmm. horrible, but not in a way that's unusual. He's sort of, you know, he, he made him a real person and that was very, very difficult to find. Um, and with Barry... I'd already seen so much of his work, but I hadn't seen him do an English accent. So I asked if he'd ever done an audition. I got his managers and agents. I asked if he'd ever done an audition in an English accent for something else, if I could see it. Um, and I saw something that he'd done and it was just, it was for something that, it was some, for something quite surprising actually. And again, it was just that feeling I always have with him where I'm just like, I was watching it on my laptop and I was just, it, I could feel my face getting closer to the screen because... <laughs> 
almost the closer you get with Barry, the more enigmatic he becomes. He's so, the charisma is just off the chart. Um, but it's always, it's always about, you know, it is trying to be honest. And I think the thing is, is on, you know, it's that we can all speak quite plainly to each other in every department. And that's very difficult, obviously, when you're the director, because people, you know, the instinct always, all the actors, the instinct is to manage you. The instinct is to kind of, is to um, sugar the pill a bit. But I just don't, you know, you don't fucking have time on set for a pill to be sugared. And so for me, I really want people to be honest with me as much as they can be, um, or they feel they can be, in a nice, you know, in a nice way. So we can all kind of, what Josie said, which was so nice about working on something like Saltburn, is we're always operating on the brink of failure. Mm. That's a really important thing. You have to be on that edge always of something going too far, something being too complicated, too overwrought, whatever it is. That's where the interesting stuff happens. To get there, you've got to trust each other and you've got to be honest. And so I, as an actress, hated more than anything the sense of people at a monitor talking and then somebody creeping up to you and kind of then sort of saying something and, and you just be like just tell me what you're talking don't right. I yeah. don't need the journey of you discovering how to just ask me and so when I hope that with actors I hope I'm always kind and um and collaborative and I all of those things but I also I also will say I hope the thing you know that I mean you know like if people are you know, if there's a moment when everyone's like, oh, we're just having a bit of a, we can't quite make, sometimes I'm just like, okay, come on, come on, lads. It's just, let's, let's just stand there and say our lines and see if it works out, shall we? <laughs> Rather than standing here for hours having a conversation about it, let's just have a go. You know, it's sort of, it's that thing of like all being in it together and being able to like joke with everyone. And so that really, really helps. And the film is set in 2006, and I, as someone who was in college around that time, the, the pop culture references are so good. Like, you just, you're flown back to that moment so quickly. Was there a certain one that, like, was the one you had to get, whether that was one of the songs or one one of the uh, the movies that are referenced? Like, what was the pop culture reference you're sort of most proud of that's in there? I think the Livestrong bracelet <laughs> yeah. that Felix wears... <laughs> Really no, I completely forgot about those until you see it. <laughs> and it's the sort of boy who was wearing them at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of it was so wonderful because, you know, as brilliant Susie Davis, who's the unbelievable production designer, said, you know, we treated it like a, you know, it is, it's a period drama. Mm -hmm. And actually, you have to be even more careful when you're dealing with the recent past because you can so easily let things slip through the net. Um, but all of it, you know, for example, the Blackberry ringtone, Mm, right. God almighty. I mean, that gave me proper shivers when I heard it, you know, uh, sort of like an awful. But all of it, it's just, you know, it's that texture. And what's so great about it is when you're dealing with beauty, when you're talking about film, you know, you're talking about, uh, you're talking about surface versus the kind of sticky underbelly. And you're talking about beauty and what beauty does to us all, you know, kind of drives us all insane. In order to humanize it, we have, you know, we, we, everyone looks a little bit lame because the recent past is a little bit lame. And that made, you know, it was wonderful that because of the Gothic structure, we had to, we had to have, you know, some a narrator telling us about something that happened in the past. But, but the fact that it, that it also humanized all these unbelievably beautiful characters. I mean, you know, Felix's Carpe DM tattoo. Mm -hmm. 
just knocks a couple of gorgeous points off naturally. <laughs> it's like if somebody like screeches up to your front door, the most beautiful person in the world screeches up to your front door, but they've got a personalized number plate that says like legend. <laughs> <laughs> What are you willing to overlook? <laughs> <laughs> and when it comes to sort of capturing that era, you know, I'm interested because you see things like Superbad or a Flo Rider song and and you're like, those was the main goal to sort of capture what it felt like in those mid 2000s? Because those, I think, came out like the end of the summer, right? Or the fall. I don't, I don't know the exact dates, but how much about was it like that is a a movie that I remember from like the mid 2000 well, feelings. It, yeah, well, it's actually 2007 that most of the film is set because, of course, it says oh. Welcome Class of 2006, but the, that's the beginning of the school year. And I so, see. and so right. we passed Christmas. So it's actually 2007. So everything is, is very much to the time that okay. it was brought okay. out. We were very, very specific about that stuff. So, super bad. It, had um had come out already and they would have been able to get it on dvd we mm. checked all of that stuff meticulously i can't you know if you're going to be specific you've got to be really specific it's it's a really it's a really tricky one you need to have some space in order to understand i suppose if you're making a satire we can't see ourselves clearly in, in the immediate in the immediate moment and the thing is, as if they'd been, you know, I suppose they could have been watching Succession, mm. you know, maybe. And they could have been listening to, I don't know, like Bad Bunny or whatever. But it wouldn't feel it's not the same. Yeah. Because those things haven't been, I, I think the thing is, is that everything now in pop culture seems cool because it's mm -hmm. in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And you don't want them to feel cool. You want to kind of, you need to understand that. You know, with a, it's with a bit of distance that you can understand that all of us are human, that all of us at our fixed points can be really cool and beautiful, but actually we're just following trends like everyone else. And, it's, and it was so much about this family, this extraordinary family living this extraordinary life are still part of the world in some funny way. And it just, it, it felt much, much more, it felt much easier to make those to show those things yeah. in the recent past than it would have done now. They'd have seemed too cool. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time, and I feel like this question doesn't even make sense after hearing about your process of writing something. But with this film coming out, is what's next already clear to you? Yeah. <laughs> you it's know. clear to me, and it's really... Do you know what it's like? It's like having a new boyfriend or falling in love. It's that same feeling. It's like I... When I don't write, I get very anxious and I start to feel a bit mad. Um, and I haven't obviously, you know, written, I haven't, I haven't had the kind of like time to do the writing, the kind of mind writing since Saltburn went in, you know, since I delivered Saltburn. And so I can feel myself being pulled already away, you know. I love Saltburn so, so deeply and I'm so excited talking about it, but there's part of my brain that's like, you know, like that part of you when you just want to go and like make out with your new boyfriend. <laughs> that's kind <laughs> of how I feel about this new thing is I'm, I can feel myself being pulled there, you know, already. And it's, and it's just my, it's just so exciting. <laughs>
So now, David, we're going to hear the interview you did with Andrew Scott, the star of All of Us Strangers. And much like um, some of the interviews we had last week with Charles Melton and Jeffrey Wright, it's a movie that you saw when the actors were still on strike and were just kind of <laughs> itching to be able to actually talk to him about it. Um, and I'm hoping it uh, it finally lived up to expectations when you got to talk to him about this movie. Very much so. I've been a fan of his for a long time. I think we talked on the show about his performance as Hamlet uh, Mm -hmm. that Richard and I are big fans of. And of course, Fleabag and a lot of his stage and television work. But in terms of film, uh, this is a huge breakthrough role for him and and long overdue. And yeah, we got into it. I was I was I was relieved we finally got to get into it. (laughs) And something that um, you've written about before we've talked about on the show, um, but I feel like we should let you platform one more time, is that uh, Andrew Scott is one of very few openly out gay actors and would make some Oscar history this year if uh, All of Us Strangers goes all the way. Yeah, both he and Coleman Domingo are are kind of in that conversation in in a way that's both exciting and maybe depressing for how long it has taken since an openly gay actor has been nominated in this category, Uh, going back to Ian McKellen, who's the only one. But I think that what's especially gratifying about his candidacy for this movie is he's playing a really nuanced queer character, one, and two – the beauty of the film is that it's so infused with personal experience. Andrew Haig uh, talked to us a lot about that in our first look at the film, you know, from filming in his childhood home to really capturing this era of growing up gay in London. And Andrew Scott also brought a lot of personal experience to this role and to this film uh, in a way that I think adds tremendous texture to his performance. I would agree. Um, Let's hear your conversation with the star of All of Us Strangers, Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we're talking All of Us Strangers, which everyone who listens to this podcast knows is one of my favorite movies of the year. Wow, really? That's <laughs> yes, great. Yes, very, very much so. Uh, I talked to your director, Andrew Haig, quite a while ago about it, and it's it's a movie that that lingers. I'm sure that's the same for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it is. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure when you get a script like this and it, it's so nuanced and so finely tuned that it's a pretty easy yes. What I'm curious about to start with for you is if you knew what it would require of you right away, you know, the emotional intensity that a role like this would demand uh, for any actor, um, but sort of how you figured that out as the script came your way. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, uh, there was something I saw in, in the role, I guess, that I understood immediately um i don't i don't i didn't have any fear about it about showing that um sort of i kind of immediately knew that i i would have to go to a childish place within myself a place that i feel like i've escaped from which is a place of real loneliness and fear and i suppose lack of self-confidence that i think it's sort of beautiful within within the within the character, and um, and to go to a, a childish place really, where you where, where uh, you don't even really can't even really explain what um, you you feel is different about you, but just that you do feel that way, and um, what you might have to do to uh, survive, and um, what you may have to conceal, and the burdens and the kind of accidental cruelties that you you, you have to face. I lo- I kind of I loved the idea that that I could get to um hmm. to express that in some way. What did it it feel like to go back to some of those feelings that you're talking about? 
I was really, I went to see the film for the first time with an audience only last week because of a strike. Yeah. Strike. And I'd seen it, you know, in the screening room. And I have to say, I felt like, wow, I felt like I was sort of <laughs> sitting naked in, in a room, uh, uh, of 350 people. I know that you know, there's a certain degree of uh, nakedness in the movie anyway physical nakedness yes but more layers of nakedness layers of nakedness <laughs> but, I, but I, I felt like wow I uh, I was kind of alarmed by kind of raw it felt and um, but that's okay that's my job yeah it's the unique thing about film and especially films like this I know you just come off of a big Vanya run and yeah. that's a different kind of thing because you're it's not being played back at you and you don't right. have the opportunity to watch it as exactly. many times as you'd like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, that's the thing in the theatre. Theatre is like performance art. It's like the only art form where you don't actually see the, the product of, of what you're doing. You write a book, you read the book, you can see the book, you make a drawing, you can see the drawing. Even in film, you can see the stuff. Whereas in theatre, I think one of the liber- liberating things is that you never actually have to look at it, so you're free to express yourself. So sometimes watching yourself in a in a film, particularly one that requires so much of me, I you know we shot the film in Andrew's childhood home, and I thought that was such a generous and vulnerable thing to do, and on Andrew's part, and so I felt like it was such a privilege to be able to play this part. There's no way that I was ever going to draw on really anybody else's experience but my own and bring that um even if that makes me feel uh vulnerable i don't really mind in fact i think it's kind of a bit of an honor to be able to show that side of you and the fact that people might feel seen as a result of our work is genuinely magical Mm. knowing your work um and particularly your versatility i hadn't seen you in a in a mode like this exactly before at least on screen mm. did you feel like a different kind of actor especially having to plumb the kinds of things that you're talking about yeah i feel like um i wanted it to be unadorned you always wanted to be slightly unadorned in order to be to to feel playful but i knew that character so well as soon as i read it and i wanted to honor andrew's story i've never met andrew's parents and he's never met mine but I felt like that character had to sort of be a a weird marriage between me and Andrew and um, uh, there's just something that I I felt like he was speaking about and something that I I love watching it in acting particularly which is the nuance of the way people behave and the fact that they might say something that they don't particularly mean and I think what's very interesting about all of us strangers is that it concerns itself with what I think is quite a common experience for queer people in the sense that it's not uh, all-embracing um, acceptance mm-hmm. from their family, nor is it outright rejection, but it's somewhere in between where they still are there and they sort of say they still love you, but they also say things that are awkward and cruel and ask mm-hmm. questions and say things that really um, are kind of, brutal um Mm -hmm. in the in with the hope of of understanding i think that can happen not just for queer people but within a lot of all sorts of families and um i don't i think that was it's such a uh, such an authentic representation of what um not only familial love is but also the other kind of love the the, uh, romantic love and the, the tentative um beautiful 
terrifying nature of falling in love. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. How did Andrew present his vision to you for the movie after you'd read the script and how did you start talking through that? I mean, it's very true. It feels very true that you're both bringing a ton of yourselves to this character and the nature of it is um, so rooted in, in his expression as a filmmaker. I'm just curious what that collaboration looked like. He was very, he wears everything very lightly, you know, Andrew. I thought mm-hmm. he was going to be a very serious uh, person, <laughs> you know, because he's not afraid to... Um, to talk about serious subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's very sensitive and very kind and very interested in what, you know, I had to say. And he wanted me to bring that, my own stories. And I think we understood each other very, very quickly. It was, of course, really important to me who, because it's such a small cast, what was going to be in it because it was such um, a feeling of love and tenderness in the, in the, in the film. And uh, he really loves actors. He's really, he's really yeah. appreciative of them, and he's so unsentimental. So the vision, the vision of it was, I knew he he would cover. And my job, I think, was to express a very particular type of thing, which is to go back and give the audience a sense of childishness without gilding the lily too much you don't want somebody pretending to be a a, a boy but you also want a sense of the, you know the vulnerability of, of a child and also somebody who is learning to fall in love as an adult and how those things are intertwined and the more he gets confidence from his parents the more he's seen by his parents and the more he he's able to love himself and then of course when he starts to love himself he's able to actually love someone else so it's so much about being you know, to love and be loved is what we all want. And and also it was a big, for me, it was a big um, physical challenge. I don't know if that perhaps is apparent in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the watching of the film, but it's a very, very tactile um, film. And just the idea of when you see children, when they want their parents to, they don't want to hear what their parents saying. They say they, they put their, hands over their mouth you know when they the you know they snuggle up to their mom and they know what it's like to s- the smell of our father's sweaters and what their bed might feel like and all that felt very sensual um to me and uh, and even the way he is able 
to be embraced by his parents and then learns to be the embracer of of uh, harry i think it was i think it's a sort of something that i had to kind of map out silently for myself and um, and even though it may not be most front front-footed thing in the, in the, in the in the in the story it's certainly a big challenge for me as an actor there's one scene where to what you're saying i i felt like you had kind of pulled off a magic trick and that is when you get into to bed. Your character gets yeah. into bed with his his parents, who are played by Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. People yeah. in your age range, not yeah. uh, an age range that would be your parents. Um, and it, it when you read a, a description like that on paper, if I even just say it out loud, it sounds mm. maybe even ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and the way it plays out is incredibly poignant. Um, and that is, I think, a credit to all three of you, but especially you, <laughs> because you are playing the child in question. So, can you walk me through? particularly how you mapped that scene out because it is, mm. to me, it seemed like it was very challenging. So I, I do yeah. believe you. <laughs> well, it was challenging to a certain degree, but the, you know, the things that are always the most challenging on a, on a film set or when the script isn't there, they're always the most difficult sets. Mm-hmm. It's when people go, I don't really, what, what am I saying this? You know, why, why would I never do this? Or this scene makes no sense. That's when people get a bit narky. And people don't get narky when you're saying these extraordinary lines that feel so, um, are just so real. Yeah. Um, but that scene that you're talking about, we ended up doing as one shot, um, mm. uh, where I get into bed with Claire and Jamie, and it focuses on a duologue between Claire and I, and then there's a kind of camera trick as well as a magic trick where two don't want to spoil it but where two other characters arrive and so it was a sort of a, a big marriage is one of the things I love about filmmaking between doing uh, you know quite a long scene I think it's five or six minute scene mm-hmm. where you have to really be engaged and it's one camera and then the camera moves and someone's there and someone disappears and it's a really beautiful cinematic um, achievement on Andrew's behalf and all of I feel very proud of it that all of us did that together and it takes work and it's sort of, you know, when you say it's ridiculous, when you're talking about the practicalities of it, I mean, we were really laughing in places because <laughs> there were people getting in a bed, in bed and out of bed and there was, there was a whole sort of choreography that had to, that, that had to take place in order for that scene to, to, um, to uh, yeah. be created. But that's what I love about it. It's, it's, um, it's magic. And I love the fact that people are like, wow, how did that happen in that scene? And uh, it's a really, it's a really beautiful yeah. scene, I think. Yeah. Why do I feel this way and not this way <laughs> when yeah. I read, again, yeah, it's, it's really something. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that the personal quality of this role, uh, you didn't fear it. I wonder about the the prominence of the role. I mean, I, I think this is the biggest film role you've had in your career. And that combined with what kind of role it is, like, how did that feel to step into top of the call sheet um, yeah. for this kind of queer character, this kind of queer story, and just in general, a story that was very intimate? Yeah, I mean... What was interesting about it was I've never really, you know, I played leading characters before, maybe in films that nobody's ever seen. And I've played a lot of leading roles in the theatre. Yes. I'd actually just finished an absolutely enormous role, ginormous role. I just played Tom Ripley for 
for Steve Zalian and uh, as an absolutely enormous role. And I, yes. uh, we shot that during the, the pandemic and it actually went over production uh, by about five months. So I'd really done an awful lot of acting and I was kind of planning actually of taking some time off because it was a big old number, the last one. Um, but I couldn't not do this. Um, so, but I suppose to answer your question, um, the nature of the role, I think, was something that I feel is, uh, I suppose that's sort of wonderful. I, feel, I felt like, yeah, it was really nice to be asked to play the role um, because mm-hmm. I've, I'm sure Andrew could have got any number of people to play the part. And um, I, I'm, I'm grateful that he saw something in me because in a way he was right to see something in me because I immediately saw something that I could bring but, you know, sometimes, you know, your your hope as an actor is that people are, are you know, you're not going to get pigeonholed or that people see something in you that uh, you may not always have displayed or they don't cast you based on your box office opening or even the fact that you may not have uh, uh, hitherto played loads of uh, leading roles in film. I don't know. I, I You know, I don't know that I've played all these leading roles in, on screen it doesn't really mean that I'm going to go back to always having to play leading roles. But in this <laughs> case, I suppose there is something that's kind of wonderful in the sense like when I was growing up, I didn't, uh, the idea that there would even, a film like this would even exist um, and that I would be able to play that role um, in it is is miraculous, particularly, you know, uh, feeling out and comfortable. And it's wonderful that, that, that it's... Um, that it's taken place. I, I really am thrilled about it. And I'm also thrilled about the fact that it's being advertised that they're not shying away from the fact that it's mm-hmm. a, a, in part a love story about between two men. And that's great. That's really, really wonderful. Truly. Yeah. When I, when I say prominence, I, th- I think that extends beyond the, you know, what you do in the movie and the, the, the life it leads. Right. I mean, you have, Searchlight pictures behind this movie. Um, yeah. Couldn't promote it at the beginning, obviously, but there was a real prominence, and there has been in, in this campaign. So, as you've been able to, you know, suddenly get out there uh, for this movie, how have you experienced that part of it? Just the the level of support for a movie like this, and and the level of uh, attention, <laughs> frankly, that it's getting. It's really extraordinary. It's it's extraordinary. I love the fact that you know. I was really disappointed not to be able to go to Telluride, even though in another way I was glad that the the fight was being fought. Yes. But um, I love the fact that it was a sort of, uh, what's the word, underdog. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think people were... And so that's the magic of cinema. Like, if you make something that's really... If you build it, they will come. Like, if you you create something that's really unique and special, it's very hard to even label exactly what genre this movie is which i think is one of its strong points so yeah the fact that now people are passionate about the about the film and people seeing it two or three times and um i saw it the other the other night uh for the first time and uh yeah it does have something about it that is magical there's no doubt and you can i've been in a lot of things where something is highly respectable and admirable and enjoyable and all those things but it's kind of rare that you have something that you think there's something about this that is both very particular and completely universal and something where the audience different types of audience members gay straight whatever their 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 what happens in their walk of life is 
people respond to it in completely different ways and it's really interesting doing the press tour with it because the, the people go I, the, the line that really struck me was and invariably are they completely different lines the bit mm-hmm. that really punched me in the heart was this part and you think wow that's completely different to um what that last mm-hmm. person said and that's has to be down i think to the specificity of the script yeah yeah i think you're right um i think also to the the tenderness really between yeah. between yeah. the four of you yeah. um and i know you've been out a bit with paul getting the movie out uh of late and it, it seems like this i mean i'm projecting a little bit this seems like this is a bond that has lasted yes. uh, past the filming of the movie but how did you find you know developing this relationship on screen with him and and clearly continuing to experience the movie together thereafter Oh, I adore Paul. I just, this is plain and simple. I just love him. Um, we have a very special bond. We didn't know each other particularly well. We knew each other a little bit before making the film. And I think we're both quite pleased that we didn't. I think it added something to the, this kind of burgeoning relationship because we had a, a burgeoning relationship ourselves. And now that we know each other better and we've gone through this very intimate thing together and the fact that we both worked so hard, you know, uh, we're both the hard workers and... Um, and so to be able to sort of enjoy uh, people's response to it and to be able to talk about it, I, I, I adore him. I really do. I love him. I think he's a really uniquely gifted, generous actor and he's in, he's just so fun. And um, and I, I, I don't know, I just think we're both so grateful to, to be in a film like this. Um, we're both big movie lovers. And um, yeah, I couldn't, I really could not have asked for a better colleague um than, than, than paul we uh we referred to the nakedness earlier i'm yeah. sure you're being asked about the sex scenes i yeah. am gonna ask you specifically about the if it is the choreography of them like what it actually the experience of actually filming them and and having that level of of trust with paul when i spoke with andrew haig about it he described the two of you as quite quite fearless i'm wondering how you yeah. how you hear that yeah, I didn't I didn't really feel I suppose you have a little degree of fear. But those scenes, you know, a lot can be made of them on the day. You know, like, oh my god, the big sex scenes coming up and you have mm-hmm. an intimacy coordinator, thank God, I think they're very necessary and wonderful things. But I think it's important to remember that they can be choreographed, but you still have to be present and you still have to listen. Yeah. Um, sex is communication in exactly the way the same uh, the conversation is communication, a verbal conversation. So that's what I loved about it was that we had a sort of framework of where we'd go. But how do you portray nervousness? How do you portray lust? How do you portray all those things. That's really a really interesting one. And, um, you know, Paul and I's chemistry in real life is actually kind of irrelevant. There's a skill um, that's required that's actually beyond chemistry that you have to go, well, our chemistry is one thing, but we're talking about the chemistry uh, between Adam and Harry, these two characters, which is completely different. You know, I was playing a very lonely kind of, I suppose at that time, quite repressed character, which I don't, don't, don't feel, you know, my own, in my own life and um that's a great challenge it's wonderful because it speaks to me of empathy and that's what that's that, that's what our jobs are so it was um it was you know all the things it was kind of te- a bit scary at the beginning and then you kind of get more used to it and you know he's great fun and i think the great good thing about having some working with somebody um that you 
love um, is that the process is really enjoyable because I know people who can't stick each other can have great chemistry and the outcome can be wonderful, but the process is nightmarish. So um, mm-hmm. the fact that it was so so pleasurable and that the outcome has been so special is really genuinely unique. In terms of the the repressed nature of, of this character and the particular ways in which he, he does show affection, can you share some specifics or, or insights into how you determined that this man would be romantic and particularly with this character? Yeah. Well, I kind of feel like I, I wanted to map it out. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have really touched many people in a long time. And yeah. so the fact that he's conjured up these two people who are the first people in most of our lives that we are affectionate with, that we show um, physical affection towards. And the fact that he's gradually getting to know them while simultaneously meeting someone that he initially shuts out. And um, the balance between those two stories, I think, is very expertly um, achieved. And they have to they have to affect each storyline. That's what I think mm-hmm. is very, um, is, is the great balancing act. Um, so I was really interested in um, in the nature of physicality in the in the playing of this part. It may not seem it on, on on it doesn't look like it's a particularly physical role, but actually for me it was very physical to be as close to your mother as possible to feel like you're you're smaller than these people, even though they're not physically any bigger than you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to be you know, childish without, without gilding the lily too much and, and to make the audience feel like they did when they're, they're, they were a child without it being gimmicky was really important. So it's just really using your, your imagination and then at the same time becoming more confident sexually. Um, I don't know, for me, it was just being able to map it out as much as possible. And that sort of takes a lot of I suppose it takes a lot of mental work in my my imagination about when you should, what note you should play, and, and more specifically when you should play it. Mm. Especially a movie that does exist in this kind of metaphysical realm, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's interesting that you have this very realistic style of acting, style of sex, style of, of relationships, and it's in this expression that's yeah kind of another plane yeah it's really interesting and, and i think that i love i love that juxtaposition actually in the theater you know when people play multiple roles or you know we accept it immediately we go oh, wow okay that's great and you know that's yep. the convention within the theater and we don't do that so much in screen work and i think sometimes we can afford to be a little bit more audacious you know i love the fact that there isn't a kind of nuclear glow around claire or jamie to signify <laughs> that they are who they are because that felt actually in 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 um in playing those scenes, it, it just felt immediately, it didn't feel, oh my God, this is ridiculous. I felt like this is really easy to play because um, because you're, we had to engage our imaginations, which is our first was our first job as actors is to, to, to power into that imagination. Um, so that's how I would... That's how I would characterize my experience for the most part is to is to really engage in that and that and that part of me that um you know exists and is within me in, in in so many ways and it's just about you know digging around a bit. Yeah. So it was interesting hearing you talk about Tom Ripley earlier because I, I was gonna ask you if this was a role where bringing all this you know the pain you were talking about into the part, it was hard, tough to take home perhaps i would yeah. imagine ripley is also 
It's a very tortured character, yeah, yeah. Uh, at least in previous iterations. I can't say I know what you guys are doing, but yeah, uh, yeah. I would guess yeah. it was. There's a certain level of psychological intensity, but yeah. you know, come doing these projects, um, you know, one after the other. Was that a lot psychologically for you? Yeah, yeah. not so much this one, but I feel like um, Tom. You know, you're required to sort of love your characters and advocate for your characters and you have to your job is to go why what what's that i don't you know you don't play the sort of previous attitudes that people might have about tom ripley that's the thing that you have to be a bit like you have to throw those out and try not to listen to them and go okay well i have to have the courage to create our own version and my own um, understanding of the character but it was a heavy it was a heavy part to play i find it uh, mentally and physically, really hard. I find it tough. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, yeah. You know, that's just the truth of it. Um, so, in a way, it was it was a bam in some ways to play um, this character, um, because I suppose the journey to understanding this character was a less arduous one than trying to understand what Tom Ripley does certain mm-hmm. things I can understand but other things you could go it's actually the blankness that's sometimes hard to um, engage with I can't bring my own um, experience of murder to the, to no. the <laughs> to we that. would hope not I would hope not <laughs> well, certainly that's maybe not something that I should admit to you today <laughs> not on the record anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly yeah. Uh, Well, Andrew Scott, we will leave it there. Thank Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. That does it for today's show. We will be back on Thursday. Find us at Vanity Fair on social media at VF Awards Insider. I am around social media at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.